Welcome to the great unknown, global cultural explorations. We venture into the unknown for us and discover treasures that we can bring back to share with you. Okay, and welcome to the first episode of The Great Unknown, with me, James Harris. And me, Wolf O'Neill. Fabulous. Hello, Wolf. So, we should actually explain why why we're calling our podcast The Great Unknown. We are here because we don't know enough about the world, and we want to know more. So, we've decided to start challenging ourselves, and hopefully you, to explore everything around us with a finer tooth comb. Find the things that we don't know, learn more about them, and share the things that we discover with others. Absolutely, uh, that's that's uh, that's exactly our mission. Um, for me, I think we the world we're not asking where places are anymore. All the all the lines on the geographical map have been filled in. But uh, what we should be asking is what are the places in the world and how do they do things? And so this is the map of the great unknown, and we are going to fill in little bits ourselves. We're going to be looking at culture. Art, history, entertainment, literature. So, and we um, actually have a theme for our first week. Yes. Am I correct, James? You are correct. And what is that theme, James? That theme is fire. Fire. <laughs> so it links into a couple of our topics this week. So the, the three things we're going to be discussing this week in particular are the film Burning, uh, which has just uh, been released this year. So we're going to do that a little bit later on. And through some interest in that, we kind of got onto the topic of fire in general. And so we're also going to be talking about fire watchtowers in the US. And I'm going to be having a look at arcade fire music videos. Let's begin. You, you are, uh, you're a big fan of traveling in America. So on our first little venture abroad, you want to tell us a little bit about fire watchtowers? Because I know nothing. So I'm, I'm excited for this, actually. Yes, I do, and thank you for suggesting I speak. <laughs> Most people really regret it afterwards, so let's see how it goes. Well, how I came to this was because one of my favourite video games ever is Firewatch. It was this adventure game developed by Campo Santo and was released in 2016. The game follows Henry, who gets a job as a fire lookout in the Shoshone National Park, which is in Wyoming. He starts to experience strange things, and with the help of Delilah, his supervisor, he begins investigating the mystery. It was a really fun game. I love the visual style, the story, the everyday exploration. You get to pick up rubbish that people leave in the national park and put it in a bin. I couldn't (laughs) be happier. It was honestly just so nice to explore this place that I hadn't visited, and I really enjoyed just kind of traveling around. And it, It inspired me that when we came up with this subject matter to think about fire watchtowers, and then I decided to investigate, explore, and learn. Fabulous. I, I watched the trailer for the for the game that you sent me, and uh, yeah, it's a, it's a curious game. What platform is it on? All, I believe all now. Okay, great. I played it on PlayStation 4, but I think you can get it anywhere. Great. Uh, a little bit of backstory. So, the wildfires that recently ravaged California were the worst in a century, but the ones that hold the record, uh, there's one called the Peshtigo Fire of 1871. It took place on the same day as the Great Chicago Fire and burned across Wisconsin, damaging 1,200,000 acres of land and killing at least 1.5 thousand people, but the number is likely higher. 
Then came the Great Fire of 1910, also known as the Big Blow Up, which is not as fun as it sounds. No, no. It burned approximately 3 million acres across Idaho and Montana, as well as Washington and British Columbia. It killed 87 people and caused extensive devastation and is considered to be the largest in U.S. history. Not fun yet, but stay with me. (laughs) Uh, The U.S. Forest Service was uh, only newly formed, and after this it was decided that they needed to battle and prevent every wildfire, and thus their budget increased. This is where the fire lookout towers start to come into the picture. These constructions are towers topped with a small building where lookouts can live and watch for wildfires, so the support can be called in immediately. Construction of these towers began promptly, by the, but the majority were built during the 30s by the Civilian Conservation Corps. Are they built out of wood? They're usually steel. Oh, makes the, more sense. The towers on the top could be wood, but they're, they're quite high up. Okay. Some of them are built of stone. Oh, really? And some of them quite low to the ground because the hill that they're on is so high. Right. Depending on your location, you can you build to the appropriate height. Anyway, the Civilian Conservation Corps is a public work relief program created by President Franklin D. Roosevelt to combat the Great Depression, specifically by creating jobs for the young, unemployed, and the World War One veterans. On top of this, hundreds of workers were enlisted by the Forest Service. Many of them were women. So these lookouts were equipped with Osborne Firefinders, which are a type of... Allidade or turning board that enabled the fire lookouts to what find. What the hell is an Allidade? I I don't know, but I'm hopeful I'll explain it clearly, and then you'll kind of be able to work it out. So it's this board. Is it a turning board? As I was saying, and they find a directional bearing on the smoke, and you can do it even at night in order to accurately alert fire crews by using data from multiple towers. Dispatches are able to calculate an accurate location, so you have to communicate the data from each. They have a map on them. And they have all like compasses and all yeah, that yeah. kind of information. So they're, they're detecting length away from the tower, uh, where they fit on the map. And then they kind of corroborate them all with each other to kind of work out where the fire is taking place. So is that a kind of similar um, kind of similar process to how uh, mountains get measured for their height and things like that? Because they triangulate distances between different peaks? Potentially, but I actually don't know and we'll need to investigate further. <laughs> Hold on, we'll get back to you on that one next week. You, well, even our next topic will be... How to map mountains. <laughs> the mountains, it's a good next topic. Yeah. So these were basically constructed and they, they were in every lookout tower and they trained everyone who worked in them to be able to use this equipment so that each person in every tower could locate the fires and they would work with each other and then the rescue crew would get to exactly where they needed to be to stop it rather than just having to travel out into the wilderness. Uh, one method for fighting these remote fires is via smoke jumpers, which sounds so cool. Uh, what do you think a smoke jumper is? Uh, it's a jumper that you wear to prevent smoke inhalation. <laughs> no, uh, but good idea. Thanks. Uh, so they're basically, they're firefighters who parachuted in from helicopters. Uh, they were permanently in place by 1940 and are still in use today. Wait, there were helicopters in the sort of late 30s? Yep. Wow. Uh, I didn't think they were being much use at that point in time. I guess. Wow, amazing. Well, they could have come from planes at the time. Maybe they come in from helicopters Yeah, I suppose, yeah. yeah. Russia employs the highest number of smoke jumpers anywhere in the world right now. Still now? Yep. Wow. So basically, you find out where the fire is, and you obviously fly in over the top, and you drop them in right on, like as close to the landing zone as possible. Otherwise, it could take them hours and hours to hike with all their equipment to where they need to be, so they can get in immediately to start providing kind of a response straight away. The mascot for fire prevention in the parks is known as Smokey the Bear. 
he was an icon creator for the public service campaign to educate the public about human-caused fires. And he came into being in the 40s when a lookout in Lincoln National Forest, New Mexico, spotted smoke. During the firefight, a three-month-old black bear cub was rescued from a tree, nursed back to health, and immortalized as a real-life symbol of fire safety. Over time, scientists grew to understand wildlife management and the ecosystems of the national parks better, while the costs of fire suppression were increasingly demanding. Ecologist A. Starker Leopold... (laughs) Sound like I'm saying... Uh, P.I. Staker. Um, (laughs) He published a report in 1963 that essentially suggested the lands had... that lands left to burn as they naturally would without man's involvement would improve. Lightning is one of the main causes of fires in the wilderness, anyway. Uh, A shift from fire control to strategic management involving strategic burning allowed the ecosystems to more naturally exist, letting fires act on the landscape while controlling them enough to prevent disasters. So what was happening is they were controlling it so much and preventing all fires from ever happening that the land was not growing and developing the way that it naturally would, and it was actually impacting it. And he basically trained people to understand that they need to let nature have its course, even if that can seem disastrous at first. So, Uh, An example of this takes place in Sequoia Park. California's Sequoia National Park was struggling at this time. New Sequoia growth was limited or non-existent, and thick underbrush had sprung up and taken over and was threatening the the Sequoia trees. They'd been kept in check before by lightning storms and fires, but this burning was being prevented. So, strategic and controlled burning was tried, and they had great success. So, they're able to then, uh, it burns and controls some of the underbrush, the other growth. The trees are able to continue to thrive, and everything just grows better. The sequoias are the ones that are really, really, really old, aren't they? I mean, I know the not redwoods the, are massive. Yeah, they're not the redwoods, but the sequoias are quite pretty, prominent. And they're pretty they're, iconic in, in California. They're lovely trees. Uh, oh, that sounded creepy. Uh, uh, in, in addition to fire working as a natural form of control for some flora and fauna, it can play a variety of other important roles in ecosystems, and many plants are specially adapted to live and thrive in fire-prone environments. Some plants are so specialized that they need fire in order for their seeds to sprout. Some plants and trees have cones or fruits that are covered in resin, and they require fire to spread in order for the resin to melt, opening the seeds while other plants receive chemical signals from smoke and charred plant matter to break seed dormancy. Wait, can I I just ask again? So there's there's plants that actually require the heat in order for for them to continue. That's like like their reproductive process involves the fire being so hot that the seeds open up. Yes, and if you prevent the fire from ever happening, those plants will essentially just stay dormant and not spread their growth or germinate anymore that's remarkable because until a fire happens yeah i mean we think of fire as a kind of a destructive force a kind of disaster but actually that's fascinating that that's part of the life cycle of of a living thing that's yeah that's quite staggering to me indeed it is fascinating decades can pass while the plants and seeds await fire to help them seed and develop some plants have developed to survive being burned not extensively or intensely of course but they can be set on fire and they'll be fine they have thermal insulation so the bark dead leaves moist tissue prevent uh, protects them some plants have specialized buds beneath their bark so that if they are burned and damaged the buds are safe and then they can emerge after to regrow 
other plants simply flower in the enriched soils and they kind of flower prolifically. Uh, fires create a huge flower bloom and they can emerge a few weeks after a fire. So you see the land, it's devastated, and then you come back a couple of weeks later and these plants have just exploded and completely filled the environment with fresh growth. So I'd actually decided to take a small detour here just because we're trying to explore as much as possible. And I just wanted to read a small poem by Emily Dickinson about fire, which I thought might be interesting considering the direction we've been in, talking about life and how it has regenerative powers, etc. And the poem goes like this. You cannot put a fire out. A thing that can ignite can go itself without a fan upon the slowest night. You cannot fold a flood and put it in a drawer because the winds would find it out and tell your cedar floor. So, just a little uh, brief, nice poem. Oh, very nice, very nice. About Who, life. Who's Emily Dickinson, by the way? But she's a very, very famous, very distinguished American poet. And, uh, she, yeah, check out her material. She's got a wealth of it. What kind of what kind of era? She oh. is 1830 to 1886, I think. Okay, so that's, that's really early on. She must be quite early in terms of American poetry, yeah. She's very influential. Yeah. And I've been meaning to read a lot more of her work. So I was excited to kind of delve into it and just find a few little things out this leads me on just to kind of finish up with the topic that i was talking about uh the kind of the current state of fire watchtowers because obviously these were built generally in the 30s and 40s yeah yeah and over time they have deteriorated from use a little bit especially in north america at one point according to the former fire lookout sites register there were as many as eight thousand lookouts in the states Decay, advances in technology, and general restructuring have led to a steady decline in these numbers. And there's currently around sort of 1,287 lookouts registered in the US, uh, according to the National Historic Lookout Register. But these numbers are changing, because for everyone that gets decommissioned, there are others that are being brought back into existence, or even rebuilt as brand new ones. Uh, there are a number of preservation projects operating to preserve, protect, and restore these historic sites. Uh, and some of them, they, they kind of re, they're improving everything that's in them, replacing it, getting them ready to be used again. And I think there's lots of people, you can go and stay in some of them as well as, to, as hotels now. Wow. So some of them are still in operation. So like you can go and you can pay, I don't know, $30, $40 and you can camp there overnight. And then you just have to be gone the next morning before they start their shift. Really? So you kind of yeah, so you can sleep in these towers up in the up in the woods. Uh, one famous way these sites continue to live on is through the writings of Jack Kerouac, uh, who was a star of the Beat Generation. Uh, in the summer of 1956, he spent a three-month period in the North Cascades Park in Washington State at the Desolation Peak Lookout. The period, uh, this period of his influential work, um, led to him publishing the Dharma Bums, Lonesome Traveller, and Desolation Angels, which all make reference to this period of time at different points. So, in Alone, uh, in Jack Kerouac's Lonesome Traveller, there is a short story called Alone on a Mountain Top. It's really interesting as he depicts and explains his kind of daily routine, how it worked living in there, what it was like being at one with nature, being on his own, and this was kind of just before his success, I believe that after he comes down, On the Road gets his publishing deal, gets sorted for On the Road. Right. And then he goes on to become the kind of monumental success that and influence that he's been ever since. Hmm. So just, to, you know, here's a little bit of an extract to just get some feel for 
what it was like living there. In the middle of the night, I woke up and suddenly my hair was standing on end. I saw a huge black shadow in my window. Then I saw that it had a star above it and I realised that it was Mount Hoseman, 8,080 feet, looking into my window from miles away near Canada. I got up from the forlorn bunk with the mice scattering underneath and went outside and gasped to see black mountain shapes gianting all around and not only that, but the billowing of the northern light shifting behind the clouds. It was a little too much for a city boy. The fear that the abominable snowman might be beneath me in the dark sent me back to bed where I buried my head inside my sleeping bag. So he just kind of details of this sort of 20 or so pages, what it was like getting up, making breakfast, doing his chores, how he talks a lot about Buddhism and his experiences of kind of religion while he's out there alone. And there's a few really interesting extracts where he witnesses fires and he talks about the procedure of um, tracking them, sending the coordinates and the information to the rescue services so that they can come out and try and prevent it spreading. So what was that passage from again? It's called Alone on a Mountaintop, which is a kind of subchapter in Jack Kerouac's Lonesome Traveller. But he kind of, the impression I get, he references this experience, this three months he spends in a couple of other novels as well. Oh, fantastic. And essentially, yes, he's just one of the most famous people to have ever stayed in one of these fire lookout towers. And it's his writings that have kind of lived on. I've got a couple of questions for you. Um, so hopefully I'll have a couple of answers too. <laughs> see what you can do so you said the towers communicated between each other and they there was a lot of communication to sort of get the exact position of the fires so would that have been enabled by telegraph type technology you kind of get this wire system I don't know a huge amount about it but like early communications technology where people start start sending telegrams that kind of thing is that the kind of technology that's going to assist the communications sounds about that kind of era i honestly don't know because obviously as and when technology has improved at different periods of time they would have been used differently Mm. so they would have been using radios as soon as radios were able to be used yeah oh it's just interesting i think you know technology and our relationship with it is something that i'm very interesting and it might well come on to uh, at another date so it's, it's interesting you know th- something that's then become cultural in the way it's been used by writers like jack kerouac is actually contingent on technological advancement if you like um it's not just they're not just towers you stand up and say oh look there's a fire over there you have to actually communicate and it's um, really interesting that they have to be constructed so that they can see so that each of the towers can kind of triangulate every area possible so that yeah. there's never one tower kind of looking out on its own yeah. there's another that can they have to work as a whole system yeah yeah that's really fascinating so my question to you is mm, yeah. uh, i'm aware that there are some firewatch towers in australia if not quite a few actually because obviously fires over there are a really big deal as well did you ever visit any or did you ever learn anything about them when you were in australia so yeah, so I've I've got a little bit of experience of. Did you have um, to start trying to do the accent? As no, I, that, I wasn't doing the accent. I really felt like you were going <laughs> to begin. I uh, yeah, I got accused of sounding Australian when I came back. I've got a little bit of experience um, of seeing wildfires in Australia, particularly in Victoria. I lived there for about uh, just over a year in Melbourne, and I remember particularly driving back from the great ocean road towards melbourne and it's this huge flat plain and 
the summer lightning storms were something else there. I mean, you'd just be driving along and the whole sky would just explode with lightning. And it's quite spectacular. And you think, wow, this is amazing. And then all the Australians in the car are going, mm, this isn't necessarily a good thing. And, um, and they were setting fires to the planes. Oh, yeah. Like uh, you could see bits of smoke uh, in, in the distance in places. I didn't notice that first because you're too busy being amazed by the lightning. But then you realize and you think, actually, in the middle of this boiling hot summer in this completely dry area, that is lethal. And it's just, you know, it, it happens quite a lot in the summertime. And actually, Australia's had some awful, awful fires, the kind of damage to wildlife as well. It's just really devastating. But the thing, the thing that I remember particularly is uh, I went hiking in the Australian Alps. And when you're on the mountainside, you sort of look down and there was this huge swathe of just grey landscape, if you like, because all the trees had basically turned into sort of grey-white ash. But the fire was so hot that the gum trees basically exploded from the heat. The heat of it was so strong and because and it moves so quickly from you know from tree to tree and across the whole landscape just terrifying like the you know the animal life there was really really hammered but yeah my I, that sort of brings me on to my topic because i was um when i was in australia i was uh, i spent a lot of time going to some some museums i got some cracking museums in australia my favorite one in the world is actually in tasmania it's called mona the museum of old and new art so if you get a chance to go to tasmania go there it's phenomenal i'll try and stop by um, soon yeah sure it's an easy hop from uh, from london but what I wanted to talk about was there was an exhibition I saw at ACME, which is the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. Uh, and the exhibition was called Spectacle. And does it have anything to do with ACME, the company from the Looney Tunes cartoons? The ones that supply Wiley Coyote with all of his explosive devices? I couldn't possibly comment. It may well do. Um, it probably doesn't, but... No, no, it de- definitely doesn't. Just thought yeah. I'd bring it up. Yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> um, so there's an exhibition there called Spectacle which was about music videos, and it was absolutely brilliant. It was, uh, it framed music videos in a way for me that I, I haven't considered before. And the whole museum's about different forms of moving image. Don't let me forget, the Prince Charles Cinema in London is screening a variety of Paul Thomas Anderson's music videos on 35mm, and they've, I don't think they've ever been shown in a long time anyway, in the cinema before. Oh, interesting. They're doing that as part of a one-off night, followed by his documentary. So, just thought I'd put that out there. I went to the Prince Charles the first time the other week, and I was in the not the smaller cinema. Do, oh no, we went there to watch Ex Machina upstairs. Did we? Yeah. Huh. Oh well, it was the second time then. <laughs> and, uh, I was you in the for- downstairs, and I you I, forget all our firsts together. I'm sorry, Wolf. Yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't actually enjoy the cinema when I was there the other week, but I went to go and see Derek Jarman's Blue, which was was really nice. Oh, cool. So back to Acme, which is not the Looney Tunes explosive company, um, but the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. Um, they've got all sorts of exhibitions about um, video games, cinema, other different types of creative ways of moving images. Really, really fascinating place. Really interactive, and that's the thing that I particularly was taken by in the music video exhibition, which was interactivity in music videos and I wanted to particularly to talk about Arcade Fire and their music videos. Arcade Fire are a band from Montreal, Canada. They are Wynne Butler, Regine Chassain, Richard Reed Parry, Tim Kingsbury, William Butler and Jeremy Gara. They released their debut album Funeral in 2004 to critical and commercial acclaim. They have transcended the indie scene of the 2000s and to date have released five studio albums. 
Rajin Shusain is also of Haitian descent. And interestingly, they actually donate one euro, dollar, pound of every ticket sale to a Haitian charity. I've, I've never been a massive Arcade Fire fan, but I, I was really struck by that exhibition. And, I, and when we were talking about Fire, it just it's, it popped into my head. And I wanted to look into it more. And I'm really fascinated by interactive art. Arcade Fire in particular important in this because their video, Neon Bible, is often cited as the first interactive music video. And it's a really interesting technology that's emerging and we're going to see a lot more of in the future, I think. Yeah, so what I would uh, what I would suggest is I'm going to give you a couple of videos to go and have a look at at home, um, you know, in your own time. Um, but check out their videos for Neon Bible and check out the videos for The Wilderness Downtown, which is uh, the video for a song called We Used to Wait. There's Sprawl 2 and Just a Reflector, which is obviously for the song Reflector. There's a lot of really, really interesting different interactive videos they've done. And I'll put the links up on our social pages so you can go and have a look yourselves. And it's, it's amazing because they're, they're really at the forefront of, I think, a big change in the music industry in general that's kind of come about partly because of the internet, things like Napster, the availability of music digitally online. Suddenly, this music itself is is not the whole product. Now you have the band's creative sphere is is essential now. And I think bands like Arcade Fire are the kind of the forefront of this. They make, you know, artistic videos to go with the songs and that's what puts them at the top of the game. Do you know um, why they've chosen to pursue these types of videos? No, it's um they they've I don't know what inspired them in the first place, but they've ended up working with some really interesting artists. So there's a couple of people that are really, really important to look at. And Vincent Morissette is the guy who did Neon Bible. And he also did the interactive video for Reflector. Now, there is a regular video that's also done by Anton Corbin. Oh, yeah. They work with all sorts of people. It's really interesting the different people they work with. Um, and then another important Didn't he guy, make Control? Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great movie. He's yeah, he's really across music videos and music is his kind of theme in in all of his films. And Chris Milk is the other guy who has done a very couple of very interesting projects. So he did the the Wilderness Downtown, um, and he also did a really amazing project called the Johnny Cash Project, which is a, basically a video that is fan made, and so the video is shot and then fans can take a still frame of that video and they draw their own version of that frame and then submit it to this project and then when you so when you go on the project and you play the video it plays the whole video out of fan submitted frames so it's this constantly moving and evolving illustration of this video is it continually being updated yeah continually being updated so, you so could, if you could, i went you, in and did a frame now then in a week's time somebody and Somebody watched a totally different video to the one that I watched when I submitted it. Yes, absolutely, yeah, which is amazing. So that's it's it's giving it an incredible life and an incredible opportunity for people to really be involved in the art that they that they love or the music that they love, which I think is really fascinating. It's given it such a long life. And I, I, I believe there's someone who's kind of got overall control of it and can shape it the way they would choose. But you can go through frame by frame and see all the different ones that people have have drawn for that frame so you could you know you could if you're listening now you could literally go draw a frame add it in yeah it's an amazing project what arcade fire have done a lot more of is kind of getting you to interact with their videos so 
Neon Bible was basically it's just a video of, of uh, Win Butler, who's the 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 lead. And you, and you like click to make yeah. him and then move as you want them to to the song. Yeah, exactly. It's very simple. Like so, Neon Bible because it's the first one. It is very very simple. The song kind of plays and he's singing, but you can click on different parts of him, and he'll his hands will move or his face will change colour and sprout out the words. It's a little bit Monty Python-esque. It's a little bit quirky, yeah. Almost Some of almost, that Terry Gilliam stuff. Yeah, yeah, a little bit like that, actually, yeah. It's a bit sort of like, a bit more gothic. Time Bandits is being made into a TV series, by the way. Is it? I believe so. Just to put that out there. That is one of the n- most nuts films. I remember watching that many, many times at our friend. Isn't John Cleese Robin Hood? Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what is it like? And he, he's, and here you go. Here's some gold for you. And and little John just punches the. <laughs> 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 it's just the most absurd film. I love that. Uh, we used to watch that so much when we were younger. So in the other music videos, they they used it really interesting ways to involve you in the video. So there's one, for example, where uh, this is Sprawl Two. If you just um, Google Sprawl Two dot com it connects to your camera, then it responds to your movements. So if you've got a video camera on your laptop, as the video plays, you have to move with it. So it forces you to kind of dance. It forces you to move. And so you can't just sit there and and kind of just watch it stony-faced. You have to move. And it feels a bit silly, but it's actually completely connecting you and the song together, which is really interesting. And I'm really interested to see where this kind of technology goes because there's a lot of different things of using your camera and your microphone to respond to what you do so that the way in which you watch it shapes the video do you think we'll ever be able to use it in a live music environment whereby a band is playing on stage but the audience can kind of dictate the visuals oh 100 responses yeah. so there's a really interesting thing happening at the moment called google experiments where people can use this kind of technology and there's a cracking interactive piece for example there's one which is a crowdsourced kind of video called do not touch so do not touch.org and it asks you to move your mouse around the screen and sort of point at various things and follow various lines as the video plays and then it records your mouse movement and adds it in so and then as you're watching the video you're also watching thousands of mouse pointers that everybody has done and it's amazing how they all flow together or don't work together and there are lots of things like this where multiple people are their input is being taken and then put into uh, an output. So their their movement is converted into a digital signal and output into something. Lots of people are doing it with things like lights. You remember the old kind of visualizer things you used to get um, when you played on like Windows Media Player or something like that? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, so uh, now... Where it looks like a screensaver. Yeah, exactly, but yeah. It kind of beats to the music. Those now, through Google Experiments, are responding to multiple people's inputs and things like that. So there's no reason that you couldn't put a bunch of sensors in front of a crowd and then have that connected to an output somewhere else that would affect, say, the lighting or the video display in the background or something like that, yeah. Cool. So really interesting possibilities. So, for example, as well as the video with the wilderness downtown, where you type in your um, your postcode of where you grew up, and it uses Google imagery and collated imagery to include your sort of the house you grew up in, basically, as part of the video, and it kind of gives you this sense of you know, oh, your youth that's gone gone past now, kind of thing. Sad. It's a bit like yeah, it kind of kind of works. Provided I think you get it at the right age or, you know, you're in the right kind of frame for it. But it uses lots of different HTML pop-up windows to 
uh, adjust the video depending on your uh, on your input. So there's loads and loads of really interesting interactive stuff coming up, and I think music itself it really lends itself to interactivity because inherently I think combined with music is dance, and music is something that often that people just have their tastes, and it's not based on anything necessarily intellectual. Sometimes it's just the feeling it gives you, and I like that music is now responding to people's feelings. Uh, I think that's a really interesting development in in music and interactive art what's your favorite song i do really like reflector that's the song that that kind of got me into it, it. so song. have a listen to that um i quite like put your money on me then if you see like the trailer if you look up the trailer for where the wild things are that's that's their song in the background of that as well and that's that actually is really effective. i actually can't think of that think of them without thinking of that film or the film without them yeah completely and that's I mean, it's Spike Jones, and they so they work with Spike Jones an awful lot. In fact, he did a whole uh, video for their album, The Suburbs. Uh, it was called Scenes from the Suburbs, a whole short film. It's actually a little bit iffy here and there. Like my favorite uh, awful line from it is, like, uh, I think it's like a cop says to this kid, and it's all about these kids in the suburbs, and the suburbs are in a war, and the cop says, "Kyle, do you like humanity?" <laughs> it's just like it's just such a cheesy, trashy line. And he just goes, "Yes, sir. Why?" Well, we're all humans, and I like humans, so... Yeah, it's just like... Oh, it's, sounds good. Yeah, it's pretty trashy for Spike Jones, but but they do do interesting work with... So um, one of your favourites, Greta Gerwig, did a live kind of video performance uh, with them as well, an awards ceremony. So it started out as this video playing in the background, and it was Greta Gerwig going through these scenes and dancing, and then she sort of came onto the stage, and the video became part of the live performance, and it was all oh, cool. combined together. It was really interesting. Yeah, so they do they do a lot of work with Spike Jones, and they scored the film Her. Oh, they as did. Well. Yeah, which is a really really fascinating film, and again, it's kind of about technology. And something I'm really interested in at the moment is this is the role that technology plays in our lives, as I was saying earlier on with with the technology of the fire watch towers. And so Her is a film about a man who kind of falls in love with an operating system. It's uh, Scarlett Johansson voices this operating system. It's Joaquin Phoenix is this guy. And it's a really, really thoughtful film, actually. And it's not, it doesn't draw the conclusions you'd expect it to draw. Really, really thoughtful film about our relationship with technology. And I think Arcade Fire were perfect for that because that's exactly what they've been exploring through this creative output. Um, and they've connected up with such interesting people. And so they're... Is it a more subtle score for them compared oh, to, yeah. say, the songs that play during Where the Wild Things Are? Yeah, I'd say so. Um, yeah, it was actually nominated for an Oscar. I'd say they're, Arcade Fire are definitely invested in technology crossovers. So this is right on the sort of cutting edge of pop culture. But there's a sign that increasingly the internet, I think, has really changed the way in which we work um, and the way in society functions so it's, it's interesting how pop culture is reflecting that um, nice use of the word reflecting there oh every time yeah so i say i think they're early pioneers they really just caught the zeitgeist of, of making music and art combine and i think the most successful artists at the moment are really doing that you look at something like childish gambino his video that came out uh, a year or so ago i mean it was the video that caused the stir not the song so it's that combination of different forms of media that is really important, particularly in the music business, I think. 
There's a band called Jungle. Uh, everything they do, they kind of work with a dance troupe. Every video they do is features dancers, and that's a big part of their identity as well. This is really interesting because now you can't just sell records and you know and that's it you know you have to have something else and it's a lot about getting people to go and see live shows is how people make money as well and by engaging them with more than the music i think that really helps so that's it's all about how the way we tell stories and the way they change how our whole society works is is a lot more interactive and a lot more digital now um and i find it interesting how you know artists are using this on an interactive technology point Tonight we are going to go and see a production of The Magic Flutes, the first opera I'm ever going to have seen. Uh, it's directed by Simon McBurney uh, of Complicite, who are an amazing theatre company. And, I, and they kind of got me really interested in interactive arts because I went to go and see The Encounter last year. It was a two-hour show, one, one guy, but creating sounds on stage that were then transferred through, your, through headphones that every single person in the audience had. And it was done with binaural sound, which which is like a 360 degree sound kind of sensation, which is amazing. They're really interested in using technology in art forms as well. So I'm really fascinated to see what the magic flute is like tonight. And it links us... Imagine uh, if we all get given flutes and a little uh, music sheet and we all have to just try and play flutes for the first time and there's no band. Yeah, we're all going to have just to the play audience. the flutes. <laughs> <laughs> There was actually, more a kazoo than a flute, but there you go. I went to go and see a performance a little while ago where a guy was talking through singing, uh, like being an opera singer and he'd, his successes and failures. And there was one particular song that he really loved. And at the end, he got he, he actually had music sheets for everybody and the entire audience sang it together. It was actually quite amazing. It was quite, the show was so-so, but the actual, the whole audience coming together to sing together was really beautiful. It was really nice. So yeah, maybe we should all have flutes and play the flute. That'd be cool. Except I have no musical ability. But the reason that we mention this is because... Because Simon McBurney, who's directing that, also did a production of The Elephant Vanishes, which also features the short story Barn Burning. So he did a theatre production of that, and Barn Burning is the short story on which the film Burning is based. And that's a short story written by Haruki Murakami. Exactly. Well, Burning is a film by Lee Chang Dong. It's Korean. And was made in, probably made in 2018, but has been having a kind of slow release across the West in 2019. Jong Su is an aspiring writer who bumps into Haimi, a girl that he used to live with in his neighborhood. She asks him to look after her cat while she goes away, but when she returns, she's bringing a new guy back with her, and this is Ben. She introduces him to Jong Su, and events are set in motion as the trio get closer, and Ben lets Jong Su in on a little secret. Absolutely, yeah. Really interesting film. Uh, we went to go and see it separately, and yeah, we have slightly different opinions on it. Yeah, slightly different. Um, but it's it's a fascinating film, and still thinking about it. Uh yes, yeah, definitely. We're also wanting to highlight it because it didn't get much love in the awards season, although some of the reviews were absolutely top marks. Tell us, uh, tell us a little bit more about what interested you about the film. A little fun fact, first of all, I believe it's coming out on Netflix in April, but this might just be in the US. I haven't seen whether it's worldwide or in the UK or not. So just keep an eye out because it might be coming to streaming services much sooner than anticipated. I've just checked and Burning came out on DVD on the 5th of March. And if you've already seen the film and before we get into it and you want to see more of his work, poetry 
is unanimously considered his best film by anyone I've ever spoken to. Mm. And I'm desperate to watch it. Yeah, likewise. I think we should watch that together sometime. We should. It's essentially a film that I just can't stop thinking about. I saw it in October, and this is now March, almost April. And I'm still breaking it down and devouring all the elements from it. Exploring what they mean, and I read Barn Burning recently, which we'll talk about in a second, and it's another fascinating reveal about the creative choices in the film and how they choose to explore the themes raised in that very short story and how they alter things and adjust events to highlight the message that they have. So we're going to go into that. I would recommend it because it's a really interesting look into Korean cinema and kind of modern Korean life. It's a fascinating story and a really great study of masculinity and relationships in the modern world and how the westernization has affected the far east and i think it's a a really interesting film that has so many layers and you can choose to explore what you want and you'll take from it a variety of different things and it doesn't give easy answers yeah absolutely and i think because we're going to go fairly in depth if you want to avoid spoilers it's going to be tricky. There's going to be a few of them coming, I think. We're going to go quite in-depth into what happens in the film. Would you recommend people watch it? Oh, 100%, yeah. Absolutely. I think it's a fascinating film. And it provokes a lot of thought about what you know about the film itself. Um, so whether you're interested in just from a film point of view, or from the topics point of view, or from world cinema, it's definitely worth a look. Yeah, really engaging film as well. And a lot of people who told me who are, have read more Murakami work than I have, have informed me that it's really good at capturing the essence of his writing yeah even from other stories not just barn burning from his entire work and collecting that into this film really feels like he's been involved in it and that's a really fascinating and interesting thing absolutely so should we start with the, the the fundamental thing that this film is about toxic masculinity yes we should let's talk about that let's let's talk about what this film is trying to do in the way it presents its characters and what happens to them yes and i'll be honest i will reference the the text in this as well because it's a really interesting comparison as well no, that's great and and i i've never read any haruki murakami as well so this is it's going to be a good kind of discussion between us from our different perspectives so the first thing to mention from reading the book is that it's only an 18 page short story 18 pages? Yep. Isn't it? How long was the film? Two and a half hours? Two hours? Uh, Yeah, two and a half hours almost. In the text, the central character, which will become Jong Soo, is a 31-year-old married man with a family. And he's involved with Haimi, who's 20 years old. And he doesn't care about her at all. And she also still receives, despite not caring about her, she still receives the brunt of all of his nasty opinions. So he's... Sorry. So uh, he's 31 and she's 20. And he's married. And he's married. Right. With a family. Okay. In the film, it's, you know, he is the same age as her. They went to school together. He's a bit of a loner. Yeah. And his, he's having a problem that his father's in jail. His mother isn't around. He's looking Mm. after the farm on his own. He's kind of returned back to his village. And he's like a young aspiring writer, but he seems a little bit lost in the world. So there's an interesting parallel there. And... I'll bring up the the most important thing about this in a second. Essentially, he's a very educated, very successful man. And he uses this position to look down upon her 
from almost their first meeting and the language from the very first sentence is very misogynistic and dismissive of her from an entitled higher position interesting in the film he's he's very quiet and uh quite meek and doesn't doesn't have a position to abuse as such so this is i'm going to read a short extract so you get a feel for just kind of what the writing's like and what the character's like Ooh, yes go for it uh naturally i don't know this for certain it's just what i pieced together from snippets of her conversation so he doesn't even pay attention to her probably he just makes lots of assumptions okay Still, I'm not suggesting there was even a glimmer of a hint that she was sleeping with guys for money, though perhaps she did come close to that on one occasion. Yet even if she did, that was not an essential issue. The essentials were surely far more simple, and the long and short of it was this guileless simplicity is what attracted a particular kind of person. The kind of men who had only to set eyes on this simplicity of hers before they're dressing it up with whatever feelings they held inside. Not exactly the best explanation, but even she'd have to admit it was this simplicity that supported her. He openly admits from the beginning that she is almost a blank template and every guy who meets her can make her what he wants her to be, impart his own thoughts onto her and she will become that and she will embody their vision. So this is the key to the film for me, I think, is is that these two characters, particularly Jong-Soo, kind of impart their vision of what Haimi should be like onto her. And it's really subtly done within the film. And that's that's the the critique it's presenting is is how they can put themselves in a position where they feel like they're in the right and they are blameless in anything, but actually treat her appallingly badly. I think that's the most fascinating decision from the film to alter his character so that he is a, air quotes, good guy. And he's also, because he's our protagonist, we're following him, and we do have to like him enough to follow him through this story, which I believe does happen. Yeah, I think when you start watching it, you, this, you're kind of on the side of this sweet kind of loser guy for a while. And what I find most interesting is when I'm reading in the book, there's quotes like, by the look of her as she went through baggage check, you'd almost think she was returning from North Africa, not going there. Like, he has such disdain for her half the time. And he often talks about how he talks at her, not with her. And then sometimes, in return for him talking at her, he has to listen to her, as if that's a chore. This is so commonly discussed in the book that what's fascinating to read that and then think about the film is to consider that Jong Su is maybe thinking a lot of the same things. He simply doesn't get the opportunity to say them. He and he's not. We're not hearing his narration. We're just watching him kind of quietly moving about his life. If he has all these thoughts, it completely changes or makes it more apparent anyway. His viewpoint in the story and his parallel with with Ben is fascinating, and that really develops. So in the story. The Hey Me character disappears quite early on. Yeah, do you, do you mind if I talk a little bit about the mystery? Because it is presented as a kind of thriller, particularly in the film. I can't speak for the book. Um, it'd be interesting to see the comparison there. But in in the film, so you have this kind of quite sweet romance, sort of. Um, and then Hey Me goes away to Africa uh, on a holiday. She comes back 
and Jong Soo thinks he's going to meet her at the airport and it's going to be lovely and wonderful. And she turns up with this other character, Ben. And in the meantime, uh, Ben's like, Ben's very wealthy. Ben's very wealthy. Yeah. We don't know what he does, but he has excess amounts of money, huge cars, this incredible apartment. He can cook. He listens to music while he cooks. This is all yeah. He's unfathomable got a, he's got a very ben. fancy apartment. His car is like plays a big role in the film. The mystery comes through what happens to Hamy, as you've already said. Hamy disappears, and Jong Su is left wondering what happened to her. And he's also the mystery builds up in the relationship between Jong Su and Ben, and it's never explicitly stated what that relationship is either. And so, so the key moment, the turning point, which inspires this, is the the barn burning or the greenhouse burning discussion. They get high one night, and Hamy falls asleep. And Ben reveals to Jong Su that he likes to secretly burn down greenhouses. That he likes to find greenhouses that are dilapidated, unused, unwanted, and then torch them to the ground so that they disappear forever. And he gets this kind of thrill out of it. And he reveals that he's going to do it again soon because he kind of does it in cycles. And the time is approaching and he's been looking for one while he's out visiting Jong Su. And that's when Jong Su kind of starts to become increasingly obsessed with Ben's activities. And when the suggestion starts to develop that maybe there's a connection between this this burning and Hey and maybe her disappearance. So also the, the the critical point from the scene when they discuss the barn burning as well is that after that is that Hamy ends up dancing in front of the two men, topless, and Jong Su calls her a whore. And she is not seen again after that point. That's a really that that scene is sort of the critical scene. There's this discussion about this the violence of the burning and this sudden change in really direct misogyny and then you're straight into her disappearing and then it becomes a complete thriller of jong Su following Ben and trying to figure out what's happened and then all the other mysteries within the film start to unravel a little bit so when she was away in Africa he was looking after her cat he puts out food for the cat every day but the cat he never sees it when he goes to the, her apartment to, to feed this cat. And part of this mystery is is asking what is actually true and what's not in within the story. So the most interesting thing about this burning conversation that happens is it kind of comes at the midway point in the film. Prior to this, Hamy has been a central character. And it's really, Ben has kind of been a side character up until this point. But after she disappears the focus of the movie becomes completely on the relationship between the two men and how they interact. jong Su thinks that Ben is a bit like the great Gatsby. He seems to detest him and be jealous at the same time while also idolizing him and really wishing that he could have his life and be like him. Is there a specific reference to the great Gatsby? Yeah, he specifically calls him... Yeah, he says he's like the great Gatsby, yeah. Yeah. That's right, yeah. And obviously, jong Su like, loves reading American authors, people like William Faulkner, etc. So, when he's having this conversation, he's also trying to impress jong Su with his knowledge of the world. Yeah, absolutely. Because 
I think he feels he can only he can't impress her with wealth or anything like that, but he can truly feel for her, and he also can be intellectual. Uh, I think also he believes that Ben is a fake intellectual. Yeah, he's he's trying to show what he's got. Doesn't you know he's not trying to actually care for what she's got, but he's trying to show what he's got. So what's interesting about this is you have this this competition which develops between the two men, at least from the perspective of Jong Su. You can interpret that Ben sees any competition at all or not, or even considers it uh, as another thing. This competition comes up because he thinks that Hamy is his, belongs to him, or should be with him. There's this possession element. He has a right to her, which is suggested, which kind of leads to this competition between men, which is an interesting aspect of toxic masculinity and why men would act like that. But there's also this growing admiration and adoration for Ben's character, a desire to almost become him. And the biggest aspect in, of the film is how jong Su and Ben are opposites and they oppose each other throughout the story until they become one another or they swap roles, depending on how you want to see it. And this is really heavily talked about in the book. Hamie vanishes and book doesn't make a big deal out of it and there is no storyline to do with murder at all you can maybe take it from it you I mean you can but it's really not talked about and it's it simply becomes the central character the narrator becoming obsessed with barn burning and wanting to see if it happens or not and then like a year passes and then he bumps into Ben again and Ben's like, oh, I burned that barn down. And he just can't figure it out. And it, like, haunts him. And he wants to burn barns himself. Like, he's almost driven to burn barns because he, he needs to have this this resolution occur because mm. he's not finding it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's what's what's complicated about this film in terms of... Also, it's heavily layered. It's very layered. And this is the complex thing for me. It is fascinating how it subverts expectations by setting up a certain type of romance and then turning around jong Su's character from this sympathetic character into someone who ends up being uh, a stalker, essentially, a violent stalker. Not of Haimi, actually, of Ben, which is rather fascinating. So it sets it up to for you to be on his side because he's the character that you follow throughout the film and you have this image of this privileged guy just driving a fancy car you want to think he's a dickhead and you see how Ben and jong Su end up both being subverted from their original types and that's part of the mystery is who are these characters and what are their motivations and what's really going on inside their heads and what's the truth of what's happening Part of that is I think that the filmmaker wants there to be a mystery. And so the mystery is double. It's what's going on with the characters, but also what's actually happened with Hamey, what's happened in the storyline. So you're asking, is there a cat? Isn't there a cat in Hamey's apartment? What's her role in all of this? For me, that was a bit of a problem. I felt that the, the trying to dress up the mystery and make it intriguing on a thriller level, it distracted me in a way... And frustrated me when I wanted to look at the characters more and understand the characters. And I think that 
Jong Su and has a lot of problems actually that aren't really ever addressed. They're hinted at like, discussions of his father who's going to jail, his absent mother living quite a hard life looking after you know farm animals out on the edge of the South Korean North Korean border, and it doesn't really. It I just think this guy's got problems and there's no investigation of that for me or there's not enough investigation of that for me of why that's happening why he why he then behaves in this way and there's no learning on his part so you're just trying to the mystery is just presented as as for the audience to figure out who is Do you this think character. he's the narrator? Because we see him writing. I think I don't think it's specifically set that he is the narrator i think it's set that you could interpret that he's the narrator and this is part of my frustration i think but if it's from his viewpoint maybe it makes sense that these issues that you're talking about aren't explored because he's not willing to challenge himself but i think they've left it deliberately open not to uh, not to make that point but to leave it open to that to to the different possibilities to keep it a, a mystery rather than to really investigate so for me that's what i wanted a little bit more from the film but part of what makes it so effective is that kind of gripping unease of not fully understanding what's the situation so yeah i wanted to understand the characters a little bit more and i think for me hey me was a little i wanted to know more about her as well and her her character seems to also just be an archetype that doesn't get as explored as the men, perhaps. She she is somewhat a manic pixie dream girl to them. As is, as we've talked about in the book, she has this guileless simplicity, which means that they can imprint upon her. And Jong-Soo and Ben both clearly do that. And you can see their reasons for wanting to be with her are often not about her as an individual both of them seem to ignore the things that she's saying and she's more of an object to them yeah but, absolutely but i think that she actually has her own character and i think that her desire to explore the big hunger to travel the world to study learn to not be restricted by her her circumstance jong Su is very held back by his circumstances and he we see him kind of dwelling on them a lot Hamy lives in this tiny little apartment and often everybody talks about how poor she is and how she desperately needs other people to get anywhere in life she can't do it on her own and yet she's never thinking about that she's just living getting by doing things and having a great time and she's consistently maybe the happiest character in any scene and i do think it suffers somewhat because her character almost has to suffer if it's going to be about the two men and how they view her it means that she's not she is always distorted through their eyes absolutely the whole film is about how she as a person is treated awfully by everybody else really Everyone sort of views her as a novelty. That's the core of the film, is exploring how subtly people are mistreating her and then the extent to which that can go to and the extent to which these attitudes that people have can be so damaging. Conflagratory, if you'll allow me to use a fire-based word. Uh, you know, That's the tragedy of the film. 
but because she disappears and you don't get to see as a viewer her response to the situation it's she's a complete mystery still and that's effective in what the film is doing but again also a little frustrating for me uh, I do understand that although I I personally think she is a little bit more developed and that is why I enjoyed the film so much because I could see it from her perspective I could I could feel her character moving through that film as well but this does lead me on to pantomime and the kind of theme of perceived realities because she has this incredible quote and I'm pretty sure it's in the film as well Stephanie in the book she is studying how to she's studying pantomime and in one of the very early meetings, at least in the book, it's the first one. It might even be the first one in the film as well, after they come off their kind of meeting in the street, is she teaches Jong Su about peeling a mandarin orange and eating it without ever having an orange. And how she can do it to the point where she it almost satisfies her hunger and she can taste every segment of the orange. And she goes to this long, drawn-out scene where she peels and eats every segment of the orange. And we watch it happening. And she has this quote, It's not a question of making yourself believe there is an orange there. You have to forget there isn't one. And I think this quote summarizes everything. The cat is a perfect example of this. And I, why wouldn't she live with a cat and 100% believe there is a cat and there isn't one because she's studying pantomime. She would, if she can do pantomime as well as we think she can, she could live with a cat, interact, gain everything she would get from a cat but without actually having one. And it kind of adds into that mystery of whether there is or isn't a cat. What I think is most interesting about this and this kind of perceived realities thing is that we never see the cat. Jong Su never sees it. But yet he's 100% convinced that the cat he sees later in the movie is hers. There's very little connection between that. Like you, ha- It's quite a big leap to make that assumption. It's almost as if he's forgotten that there wasn't one there in the first place. It's fascinating, the dissonance between what you are seeing as a viewer and what Jong-Soo ends up believing and thinking. And and I think the the discussion about the well, whether it was there in the first place or not, the searching for the greenhouse, hey me, what's missing, what's there, you know, what exists, what doesn't, what doesn't exist, all comes into this idea of pantomime and acting, portraying things until people believe them. And I think that all of the characters are doing this as well. Hey me, to some extent, is probably acting in a lot of what she's doing, especially to maybe impress Ben. Ben is definitely acting. He's definitely playing a game. And Jong Su is also continually trying to prove his worth. There's, there's this acting, this performance always going on. And we're never really seeing the true picture underneath. Sometimes you get glimpses of it, like it, it cracks through. But I think that's a really interesting idea. Uh, and I also think there's a variety of possible realities depending on how you interpret the various aspects of the film. And the characters all seem to live in these different realities. Like we said before, one physical thing means multiple things to different people what the actual cat means to ben is totally different from what the actual cat means to jong su and there's no real reason for them to mean different things it's just one object but they all have kind of different significances and i think that when i said this game i think ben is playing a game 
with Jong Su from the beginning, and I will come on to why I think that is in a little bit. But I think it's really interesting to think about what Jong Su believes and what he actually knows, and why he believes some of the things that he does when there's very little evidence for that. And the best thing about the film is how it makes us believe those things too. It plays with your head an awful lot and there's so much to this film. It is, it is, there's an awful lot to take in, but you're absolutely right. I think that the core is that difference in how reality is perceived by different people. Well, he, he doesn't want to believe reality. Remember when he meets Hamie's mum and she tells him the well was never there. And yet, even though someone tells him that, he still believes that the well was there and he rescued Hamie. He's the guy online who still believes that the moon landings were faked. and He can't remember rescuing her as a child. She tells him that he rescued her. He can't remember it. And yet, he doesn't trust his own memory. He goes asking people for facts and then doesn't trust those people's memories because he wants to believe that what Hamie tells him is true. So do you think that Hamie is an entirely innocent character in this film? Um, I think innocence, I think that's probably a loaded question. Very I, much so, yeah. Because <laughs> it's not that simple, that's the thing. No, it's... I think her character is developed enough that she is complex and we see a variety of aspects of her personality. I think that what the film does, though, is the film tries to give us her personality through jong Su, And as a result, when he feels jealous or angry of her, enough to call her a whore, for example, the film will maybe try and shift details to make us potentially even agree with that slightly but that's that's not the case i honestly think she's just living her life and the point is that we should maybe feel that jong su and her are meant to be together in the terms of the tropes of how movie making takes place and how romances tend to work Mm. and how the good guy always gets the girl from the bad rich guy who's like a capitalist and a chauvinistic pig or whatever and the you know the bad guy's got every all everything and pretends to be nice, and then the good guy's able to trick them into like revealing the f- facade, and everything works out, and then they get married. It it plays with all of those aspects, but doesn't give you that resolution because it knows that the good guy trope isn't true either. Everybody's more complex than that, and there are some problems in the the kind of misogynistic subtly misogynistic character of jong Su. absolutely and this 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 is the complexity of the film for me on the one hand i'm amazed by the the complexity of it the layers within it the other hand that's inherently frustrating as well because you only you get it from a certain perspective but that's kind of the game that it's playing i found it a little frustrating with the mystery as i said but it is a really fascinating film in the way that it's trying to present the narrative and giving you those questions as to whose narrative is this and what does that mean in terms of who these characters are. I think something that's very interesting to take away from the film is the other films that it references and its position within global cinema and that gives you some sort of clues as to where this film sits. And a a key reference for me that I thought was very interesting is when... Uh, a girl says to Jong Su, "This is no country for women." I think that's a very clear reference to me. Um, 
of No Country for Old Men, the Coen Brothers film, and it has that air of mystery. I feel like it's really influenced by that kind of style of Western cinema. It feels like there's a lot of Western cinema in there, and that's part of the mystery as well. It's playing with those ideas of Western cinema, but putting them in a slightly different context as well. And I found that fascinating. Uh, it reminded me of um, Phantom Thread as well, where there's an element of mystery in the relationship and you're trying to, you you as the audience see what you see, but you don't, the mystery is trying to figure out what the true motivations and relationship is. And in exploring that, they become a lot more complicated than the conventional tropes of romantic cinema, for example. And they're, they're coming from very different angles, I think, Phantom Thread and, uh, and Burning. But very, very interesting companion pieces, I'd have said. And so the film really did remind me a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson and, and the Coen brothers. And obviously there's a lot of other American references of Faulkner, Gatsby. So I found it interesting as a Korean, as a piece of Korean cinema, that it didn't feel overtly Korean. It felt very global, but it did have a little bit of interest in the fact that it was on the North Korean border and you could hear the North Korean propaganda coming over microphones. And it was there was lots of these little layers of interesting things that could really mess with a person's head and suggestions of that. And I would have been fascinated to find more of these suggestions and explore those a little bit more. But I think the, the mise-en-scene it creates um, and the style it creates that uh, is this very... It's completely in that thriller mould of the Coens is, is very interesting. And that line, No Country for Women, it just clearly sets out how this film is talking about how women don't get, they don't get to choose their story in the same way that men do and the way that cinema has been doing for, for centuries, for as long as cinema has been going. So it's a really subtle critique of male roles within society and I think within filmmaking as well. Yep, I would agree. No, I think uh, I think a really interesting line from the book. Jong Su would say the line, "I half considered striking the match myself, and anyhow, they were only run down old barns." I really love the idea that he goes searching to try and work out if there's any barns that are going to be burnt down, and over time he adapts to have Ben's understanding that they almost deserve to be burned because they're old and run down anyway. Like his thinking becomes the same as Ben's. I think that's really fascinating. I think the burning, I think the greenhouse is Jong Su, and I think Ben is burning him. And I think it is the games that he's playing, when he says, "Oh, it's really close," and Jong Su's like, "Oh, I've looked everywhere," and he's like, "Look closer," and he's like, "Oh, I, I keep looking, I can't find it." I just think that Ben is continually. The connection that him and Ben have in all the scenes, even when Hamie's there, Hamie's not looking at him or Ben. She's minding her own business. But Jong Su is staring at Ben. He's obsessed with him. And he his obsession grows. And I think that Ben is fully aware of this. And I think he's just playing with him the whole time. Very interesting. Yeah, I think you could look at it in, in a number of different ways. And everybody's going to have their different version. I was quite happy to stick with the literal because it's so yep. <laughs> it's, it's such a such a dense dense film. The the book ends um, with the line, although just now and then in the depths of the night, I'll think about barns burning to the ground. And it's it's a haunting line when you think about mm, what that is the haunting. book and the film often suggest the imagery kind of means. This deeper, more misogynistic anger. 
yeah, and a desire yeah. to destroy because Hamie is presented as something run down and unwanted. Yeah. A lot of the time. Like that she would never be noticed by anyone. It's a film about very destructive attitudes. I think you can see that as the burning. I think we should wrap up. I think we should wrap up as well. Um, yeah, I, I found the film fascinating. Um, I didn't love it quite as much as you did, but then I'm I'm somebody who likes my bread buttered more on the sort of side of like the Gillette advert, which was just smash you over the head with how sort of blunt it was being in its message. Um, oh, I quite like that kind of stuff. But I, I, I have you grown it. to like it more as times passed, um, or more? Do you appreciate what it was doing, even if you didn't love it in? in action i haven't i haven't really changed my thoughts on it i, I think it's but i st- still think it's a fascinating film so we think you should go and watch it if you're listening to this we both think that you should go and watch it absolutely should go and watch it because tell us what you think you will have your own thoughts i think everybody's going to have their own different perspective on what this film is and how it connects with them so absolutely go and watch it yeah if you think we've missed the boat if you think we can't see the wood from the trees if we're picking up on the wrong points or anything, then let us know and uh, kind of share your ideas. Yeah, drop us a line. Tell us what you think. Uh, if you have any more interesting interactive art, tell us about that. If you've ever been to a Firewatch Tower in the States, tell us a story about that. Send us in some pictures. Great. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear whatever whatever your thoughts are. And, and if you think there are any fantastic ideas we haven't brought up, I know I was interested in talking about Fahrenheit 451. Perhaps. Absolutely. Then we uh, about let doing us know songs the... as well, like uh, "Blow Ace the Cult," "Burning for You," which is a classic. Go and listen to that; it's great. <laughs> or "Deep Purple's Fireball." Yes, oh, I love it. <laughs> so if you if you if uh, if the theme of fire sparks anything in you, tell us about that. Quest for Fire, good song. It's uh, an underrated Iron Maiden song from back in the day. They're releasing a new beer called Sun and Steel later <laughs> in the year. Of course. So we're gonna get a few. Oh, cases we'll, in. we'll get some of that. Absolutely. Uh, in case you hadn't twigged, the, the the Great Unknown is also a song from Iron Maiden's most recent album, The Book of Souls. I just wanted to say as well, I saw I actually saw Burning at the Regent Street Cinema, which I would thoroughly recommend going to have a look at if you're able to, to go and see a film there in London, because it's the oldest cinema in the UK, basically. It's the sort of original UK cinema. It was where the Lumiere brothers first screened L'arrivée d'un train en gare de la Ciotat. I've said that terribly, but it's the arrival of the train at La Ciotat. And it's the one that gave rise to the urban legend of audiences running away from the screen because they thought the train was going to come out of it and, you know, burst into the auditorium. Yeah, legendary, absolutely legendary place. Uh, really, really beautiful sort of Art Deco place. So uh, if you get a chance to, uh, to, to go there, absolutely take it. If you get any other cool cinemas, any other interesting places... Worth checking out. Let us know as well. We'll uh, we'll go along ourselves. We'll let you know what we think. So I guess that's it for this week. Brilliant. Thank you, James. We're going to go off to the Magic Flutes. Can't wait for that. Uh, soon coming up, there is a film festival called the Frames of Representation. Uh, that's going to be on at the ICA in London. That's going to be some really interesting stuff. So we're going to try and get along to that. Very nice. Uh, have a look at that online as well. Some should be some really really interesting films from different perspectives again. Thank you very much for listening. Look after yourselves, be kind, and because you're so lovely, don't forget to like, subscribe, leave a positive review, and keep in touch on Facebook. Brennan, thank you. Did you enjoy yourself, Wolf? I too much, probably. Any last words for the for the any last words? <laughs> <laughs> any last That's words? <laughs> we only can do one episode and then James shoots me. <laughs> be good to each other. Bang. <laughs> well, see you next time, folks. Just Bye. me next time. Bye.
Thanks very much for listening. You can find The Great Unknown on all good podcast providers, Acast, iTunes. And the bad ones. And the bad ones too, yeah. Whatever your favourite is. You know, you don't have to you don't have to pick a good one. Good, bad. It's all it's all part of it. It's all part of the world. We're all in this together. Kumbaya. <laughs> Slightly different uh, strains of song there, but <laughs>